Again, I want to uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to, to preach. I always call it kind of a great privilege to open God's Word for the people of God. We'll be looking at Zechariah chapter 2. Uh, this is actually the third vision that Zechariah receives, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Uh, this is uh, God's uh, inerrant and infallible Word. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. Another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he... Who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. You may have noticed uh, the sermon title, How Good Is Your Vision? And uh, that is something that uh, is often a question as you go to the eye doctor. Uh, Perhaps uh, you were like me and uh, growing up and uh, my parents had a conference with the teacher and the teacher said, well... Bill seemed to have a little trouble seeing the blackboard at the front of the room. We keep having to move him up to the front. Uh, maybe you should have him go see an eye doctor. And sure enough, I needed glasses. And there are other things that happen. Uh, if you uh, get something like a spider web in your eyes, then that's maybe a, a sign that uh, you're, you've had a detached retina or something like that. And you know, to see the doctor eye doctor immediately. 
And often you, if you go there, and children might draw this, you'll, you'll be given this uh, big uh, poster to look at, and there'll be a giant E on the first line, and then a little bit smaller uh, F and whatever the next letter is, and, and on down. And you're asked to see how much you can see. Uh, but another test they do is for colorblindness. And that one is often a, a big circle with lots of little circles. And if you're not colorblind, then you'll see, oh, there's a seven. And certain ones of those circles make the, the number seven. But if you're colorblind, you don't see that. All you see is a lot of little circles in the big circle. And I'd been tested a couple of times for colorblindness and, you know, passed the test uh, without even thinking about it. Be able to say, well, that's a seven. But a few years ago, I took a more complicated colorblindness. I looked for 20 different varieties of colorblindness. And it turned out that I was colorblind in three ways. Now, I've never noticed that. I don't think it's ever affected me. You know, I can tell a green light from a red light without any trouble. But there was something I was not seeing. And I think as we look at this chapter of Zechariah, it's the same thing in a, in a spiritual way. The people have a certain sense of seeing things, but there are a lot of things that they're missing. We can be the same way. We can see a, a lot of spiritual truths and understand them, but also be missing a lot. We can be spiritually blind to certain things of God, and God wants us to know. Not seeing those things affects our attitudes, our responses. We have a wrong view. We may see some things about God, about his purposes, but there are other things that we're missing out on. And so as we look here the, at the first point, is God is teaching his people a very important lesson here. And that is as they would be contemplating the, the kingdom, what he's going to be doing, their view is too small. And behind that is their view of God and what his mission is, what he wants to accomplish with them is too small. The church, the people of God are to understand is to be growing and expanding, exerting more and more influence all around the world. They needed to see that, and we need to see that. And we need to really adjust our thinking to go along with what God is saying here. Now the first two visions uh, set the stage for this third one. The, the first one you may remember is that uh, God and specifically Jesus Christ was with his people in their lowly condition. And so God was reassuring them. Even though they've gone through a very difficult time, even though they've gone through the captivity, he was once again with his people to bless them. And the second vision was that of the, the horns and the four craftsmen who threw down the horns and destroyed them. 
Those horns represented the, the powers against God's people. And God was saying, it doesn't matter how strong the enemy is, how much the opposition is, I'm stronger. What did I have at my disposal? It's much greater than any who would oppose. And so that really sets the stage then as God has assured his people of his presence of this vision. And what's it about? Well, in verse 1, behold, is emphasizing this is what's, what's going on. And we see our attention is drawn to a man. In verse 4, he's a young man with a measuring line. And there's nothing outstanding about the young man. We can't identify him with anybody else, so he just seems to be a sort of representative, representative of the thinking of the people. And the question is, is rebuilding, and they've started rebuilding the temple, and next would be the, the rebuilding the walls. How big should we envision this? How greatly is God going to restore our fortunes? And you think about it, there was a time when the nation was glorious, the city of Jerusalem was well built and strong. You had King David and King Solomon. Well, would we return to those glory days? And uh, Jerry read from um, Nehemiah, and Nehemiah and Ezra talk about the, how sparse as they rebuild the walls. There weren't enough people. They had brought in people from the outlying area to, to live in Jerusalem because there were so few people living in it. So maybe the city should be small and compact. And that probably represents the, the, the opinions of the people that we're going to be restored. But it's not going to be like in the old days, not like in Solomon's day or David's day when this was a center of a very important nation that people came from various places. But what's the response? Notice there's a first a behold and then a second behold. And you have these angels talking and they're to go to the young man. And they have a message for him. And it's the fact that Jerusalem is going to be a city that's so full of people that they're going to spill over. As you would look there uh, in in verse uh, 4. Run to the young man. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a village without walls because of the multitude of the people and the livestock in it. It's a way of saying to the people, your vision of what God is going to do is way too small. 
you're thinking this size. It's going to go way beyond that. Now, a city or villages without walls would be because people are overflowing. They'd rather leave, live in a, in a city with walls to be protected, but sometimes they would go outside and live outside and, and hope that if there's an invading army that they would have enough time to run into the city and protect themselves. They wouldn't be too far out in the fields to be safe. And so God is saying to the people, you need to expand your vision. You need to exp- expand your understanding of what I'm going to do what my plans are for you. Now, before we get down on the people that are there, they're sort of thinking small in terms of what's going to happen to the future of God's people. These were the faithful ones. These were the ones who returned from captivity. Most stayed back in Babylon. Those places where they they were sent. And Jeremiah, at the beginning of the captivity, encouraged them. You can read about it in Jeremiah 29. to, To build houses and live there. Plant gardens. Take wives. Multiply there and do not decrease. And pray for the welfare of your city. And it seemed like the people have done that. And they prospered as they've been in this captivity. And when it came back and they had opportunity to return to Jerusalem, to return to the worship, to return to really being a a separate people for God, most stayed behind. Most were wanting the comforts that they had in their new lands. And God will address them in verses 6 and following. And so, they're being addressed. Run. There's an urgency that's addressed to the people. The future is not going to be like that, President. It's going to be prosperous. God's kingdom is going to expand and be glorious. And it talks even a multitude of peoples, the nations surrounding, eventually coming and joining and wanting to worship the God of Israel. And so through all this, God is saying, expand your vision. My kingdom, my people are going to be expansive. You have too small a vision of what I'm going to accomplish for my people, and with my people. I would encourage us to think about that as today. What do we think about in terms of what God is going to do with this kingdom and specifically with this congregation? Do we have a vision that God is going to increase it? 
that the kingdom is victorious and we're going to see it expand as it already has to many different parts of the world and even those areas that are hostile we'll see believers being raised up and verse 11 mentions the nations there's a day coming when the God's people are not just the Jews, but they're the Gentiles. And we can see believers from every tongue and nation under heaven. And as you would think about their lowly condition, the fact they're still in the midst of rebuilding the temple. As the city has no walls. As the city has very few people. God's plans are magnificent. God's promises are amazing. He has glorious plans for his people, for the church. And that's just as true today as it was in 6th century B.C. I wonder how often our thinking, our expectations, our hope in God is too little. Do you really see this congregation growing? And doubling in size? How long in your minds would it take for this congregation to double in size? How long would it take God to do that? Or to begin planning and praying for another church to form. I'll let you think about that. I'll give you my answer at the end. Now it's been influenced by my experience. When I first joined at RP Church, it was West Lafayette, there were some uh, 50, 50 years ago, some 60 people meeting in the basement of an elder's home. And since that time, there have really been three more congregations added through that work. And several are twice or three times as big as the original work. Forty years ago, Bloomington had slightly over 50 at the worship. Now it's three to four times as many, and they were instrumental in starting another work in Terre Haute. Forty years ago, there was one mission field in Japan, a culture very resistant to the gospel that's had a hard time growing. But since then, we've seen churches in Africa, in South America, and in three of the major countries in in Asia. One has three 
presbyteries now. There are more members of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America in Asia than there are in North America right now. Who would envision that 50 years ago? Do we expect that? Do we expect to see God work in marvelous ways that his kingdom has no end? Or are we somehow colorblind to what God is doing? What his promises are? And uh, then we've gone. Then the second point is these great and powerful promises are all due to God. What God is going to do. In Zechariah's day, they could look around and say, you know, we're not rich. We don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of manpower. We have a lot of obstacles in the way. We have enemies that don't like us being here. What can we accomplish? And we might look around and say, we don't have any influence on the media. We have very limited impact on the culture around us. There are many who are hostile, who, who persecute, who even put to death Christians in various parts of the world. What can we do? Well, we can't do anything. But if we look to God and what he has said, he has promised to act. So there are three things in this passage. In verse 5, first of all, I will be a wall of fire around you. Now, a city without any walls needs some sort of protection. And here God promises in verse 5 to, to be a protection for his people. And those city walls were not built until about 75 years later. And so their chief defense, humanly speaking, was gone. But it harkens back to the time of the Exodus, the time when the people didn't have any city walls either. And you may remember in Exodus 4, Pharaoh with his armies and his chariots coming after the people. And what happened? They were prevented from attacking God's people. The pillar of fire and the cloud intervened got between Pharaoh and his army and his chariots and the people of God and enabled them to, to cross over. So quite literally, God was a protection for his people. And even during the time of Zechariah and beyond, the people weren't destroyed, but were kept safe until the walls could be rebuilt. But there's more. In verse 8, God tells his people that they are the apple or it's the pupil of his eye. And what's that image? Well, if you touch the pupil of your eye, and children, I wouldn't encourage you to do that. 
But if you do, it's almost instinctive that you, you kind of jump back. You, you don't like that. It's very painful. As God's saying, as my people undergo these persecutions, these hardships, I know. And I know their pain. And I'm going to alleviate it. And so, yes, the Assyrians had attacked, and then the Babylonians. And the New Testament, you have uh, the various of the Roman officials and leaders and Euro and others who attacked the Christians. And today you have Christians attacked in North Korea and Muslim lands and in China and other places. And the point is that God is aware of each suffering. We might not know the reason why it's going on, but God is keenly aware and is deeply affected by it and doesn't let it go on any longer than it has to in order to accomplish his purposes. B, we can see the second part of God's promise is that he will dwell with them. It's really, in some ways, a repeat of the first vision. But here, as you look at verse 5, I will be their glory in their inner midst. That God is glorified in his people and his being with them. It's his presence which makes the church and the people of God so unique. It's not because we're more righteous have more wisdom, work harder, are more caring, but it's because God's presence is with us. It's what makes us different than any other organization. And that idea is repeated two more times. Uh, and you look at verse 10, behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst. In verse 11, and I will dwell in your midst. And the question is, when did God come and dwell in the midst of his people? Well, if you read the New Testament, it's an easy answer. You know it took place in the incarnation. When God came in human flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man who dwelled among us, who walked among us, who taught and ultimately gave his life as a ransom for many. And today we're told that it's the church, the members of the church, that's the temple of the living God. That by his spirit, God indwells in us. And this is all found its fulfillment in, in, in Jesus Christ. If you ver- look at verse 9 and, and then later in verse 10 it sa- or 11, it says 
almost the same thing. The Lord of hosts has sent me. There's a question of, who's that talking about? And some would want to suggest, well, it's, it's Zechariah. It's, it's a proof that he was sent by God to be a prophet, but it really doesn't fit in the context. the person who does fit is Jesus Christ. That the Lord of hosts has sent his own son to bring about the the transformation where God's people go from being a, a defeated people to being a victorious people. Not because they have superior weapons, but they have a superior king in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the prophecy couldn't be about Zechariah because a wall was not rebuilt in his day. And even if you would go to the New Testament, it wouldn't be fulfilled then because even though the city had walls and, and more people, the nations weren't flocking to Jerusalem. They were not seeking out the God of the Bible. It was only after Jesus Christ came that these promises were fulfilled. Think about the glory at the transfiguration the glory of Christ being revealed to certain of his disciples. At Pentecost, the nations now embracing the Messiah. And then as the missionary journeys go out, the people from different nationalities, races, and especially religious backgrounds being brought in to the people of God. And it's all ultimately looking forward to Revelation 21, to the new Jerusalem that's described there as 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles high. There's an awful lot of people that can live in a place that big. But also notice it's a perfect cube. The height and length and depth are all the same. There's only one other place described in scripture that's a perfect cube. It's the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's implying that this new heavens a new well, new earth where God dwells with his people is a holy place. The people will be holy. There'll be no more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. And so we see it's looking forward to a coming time when God is with his people in a deeper way when they don't have any more sin. 
And so what is God's plans for his people? Well, it's to be immense. It's to be huge. And to be dwelling in in their midst and being holy. Well, the third point is we need to look at verses 6 and following and see there's a word of warning. And it's a warning of warning to those Jews who are in the exile. And it begins up, up. Repeated twice, uh, as is often the custom in, in the Hebrew language. Uh, whether it be woe, woe, or amen, amen. Way of saying this is important. And we would maybe paraphrase it by saying, sound the alarm. There's something important here to, to understand. And that's for you who are dwelling securely in Babylon, who, who like the lifestyle, like the culture, like your new homes, like the influence you have on your neighbors. They're told to flee from the land of the north. And the main way that you would get to Jerusalem would be by coming from the north. To the west was the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, To the southwest, southeast, uh, east, you all had deserts. And so the only practical way would be to travel to the north or come down from the north. And if these nations, if they, as the Jews have been scattered in these nations, they're to come back. And there's two daughters that are mentioned in these verses. The, the daughter of Zion, the daughter of God's people, or the daughter of Babylon. And it's almost as if, which one do you want to live with? Although it's not a choice. It's really a command. Don't live with the daughter of Babylon. Live with the daughter of Zion. Get up. Go back. Become effectively a part of the people of God again. And uh, God says in verse 9, Behold, I will shake my hand over them that he is going to reverse what has happened. The lowliness of his people. They're going to be victorious. And those enemy nations are going to be brought low. Of course, if you look, it says, at that time. There's a future day that is coming when everything that is wrong will be set right. When the enemies of God and his people will be judged and his people will be exalted. And so it's really a plea to to leave behind the world, the sin that so easily entangles and seek God. What's the response of the church? What's the, the application for us as we think about this? For some, it will be what we just, just looked at, to flee away. 
to get up and change your position from seeking the world to seeking God. It seems like there's always children who grow up in the church who leave it behind. Who would rather be with a daughter of Babylon. They would rather be in that world enjoying the good things that it has to offer. The encouragement for those is to leave it behind because that's the path that leads to eternal destruction. We also see in this, as you go on to verses 10 and following, the importance of worship. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. How that should characterize our lives. As we've been redeemed, we should want to praise God for what he's done to celebrate our Savior. You know, when the Lord's Supper comes up, to, to look forward to it as something special. We may face discouragements at work, in society, in our families, health issues, financial issues. But we're to rejoice. God's people are victorious through Christ. How's your vision? Spiritually, I asked you a couple of questions earlier. Um, how long do you envision it taking to see twice as many people as morning worship as it were there this morning? My answer is one week. If every one of you went out and invited a friend and they came, you double the number of people worshiping here. You'd have to have them come back. But could you do that? Could God do that? Could God move in the hearts of people so they would respond? And uh, when should you begin thinking about a second church? My answer is last week. You could have started praying for it last week. You can begin this week. Now, it may take years to accomplish, but you can begin that foundation right now. What do you expect God to do in your midst? Make sure you're not spiritually blind to what God wants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this vision and how it shows to us uh, what you desire to accomplish for your people. It's much greater than what we would imagine, that we would think about, that we would 
by our uh, reasoning say, well, this would be something reasonable to happen. But we know that you are a God who has all power and authority. You speak. And stars and moon and planets, earth, man, animals, all come into being. Help us to see as we read the scriptures that your plan is great and glorious. That you expect your people to lovingly respond to you and want to seek your kingdom, to see it advanced, to see it transform lives. And pray for your spirit to be at work powerfully. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.